0: Welcome! My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my unreciprocated network node, Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, Greg and I have a wonderfully engaging conversation with social network analysis expert Tracy Sweet, who is an associate professor in the Department of Human Development and Quantitative Methodology at the University of Maryland. Tracy patiently helps us understand what social network analysis is and how it can be used to better understand the complexities of human behavior. Along the way, we also discuss sliding into DMs, fax machines, older millennials, baboons, too much math, inside voices, penguin data, swiping left, probation advice, unreciprocated social isolates, Wordle, the floss dance, power, and talking to your dog. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. So I have not
1: exactly a bone to pick with you, which I believe is the phrase you used with me, but I have a question for you at least. How come you make me do all the Twitter stuff?
0: I would say, why don't you allow me to touch the Twitter (laughs) stuff?
1: Do you even have a Twitter account for real? I do not. So no one is sliding into your DMs, is that
0: correct? That sounds so inappropriate <laughs> on so many different levels. I don't even know what that means. Uh, we'll just put a no next to that one. Uh, do you have Facebook? No.
1: Instagram? No. MySpace? No. Friendster? Now you're just making stuff up. <laughs> no, that's that was real. That was a real thing. No. Let me rephrase that question. Do you have friends... With a
0: stir on it or just friends? No stir, just friends. Do you count? (laughs) Because if not, then that would be no. That's a negative. You going somewhere with
1: this, Hancock? So it would be nice maybe if you had a little bit of social media kinds of skills, social network kinds of skills. Just a little bit, maybe.
0: I have a fax machine. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay, but faxing pictures of your butt to people is not technically social media.
0: Seriously? I'm not as popular as I thought I was? (laughs) Do you know how many cracked glass panels I have had to replace on that machine? Well, so the
1: good news is today I have brought somebody in to help you with your social media, social network kind of skills. Maybe just to bring you up to date a little bit. Is this like
0: an intervention?
1: (laughs) So the person I brought in who is someone who has a lot of expertise in social media, I understand. At least I saw something like that on her vita. I want to introduce you to Tracy Sweet, our is it social media expert?
2: Social network?
1: So what So that's the same basically the same thing as social media, right?
2: Well, I get that a lot shockingly
1: Uh, Um, but it's not
2: it's not actually the same thing
1: wasn't there a movie called the social network
2: there was i didn't see it
1: the first thing we're going to need is a lot of pictures unfortunately harvard doesn't keep a public centralized facebook so i'm going to have to get all the images from the individual
0: houses that people are in let the hacking begin.
1: Wait, do you know Mark Zuckerberg?
2: No.
0: Greg, I've been a part of a lot of interventions and I won't tell you why it's irrelevant here. You're really screwing this up. This
1: is really all a misunderstanding with language, I think. What is the social network thing and how is it not social media?
2: Yeah, I'm kind of an older millennial, but I can kind of pretend that I'm a millennial. <laughs> So I can tell you a little bit about the difference. A lot of social media is a form of a social network, right? So if you think about the social network as being kind of an umbrella term, and then you have Twitter and Instagram and TikTok.
0: Patrick,
1: there's something called TikTok.
2: Yes, there is something called TikTok.
0: Both of you are just making stuff up at this point. (laughs) TikTok. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's going to catch on.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so all of these are examples of social networks. But there are a lot of other types of social networks out there that are not social media.
0: Could I interrupt briefly?
1: (laughs) I know that's rhetorical.
2: Yeah. Who the hell is this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so I misread the information on her Vita. Do you think? So why don't we go ahead and have our guest? Tracy, it is Tracy Sweet, right? It is. Okay, good. Well, why don't we go ahead and have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do do, for starters.
2: Sure. I'm surprised we've never met. My office is just down just <laughs> the hall. I've been there for about nine years. That's um, you? Yeah, yeah. Isn't he like head of your program
0: <laughs> oh. or something? Well,
2: I mean, wow. he's a former head.
1: That's, a, that's awkward.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland. My research is all about methods for social network analysis.
1: What we usually do is we ask how you came to be who you are. What's your origin story?
2: So mine is is fairly nonlinear. I thought I wanted to be a doctor growing up because when you're good at school, people say, you should be a doctor. (laughs) I went to college. I was a biology major. My last two years in college, I got really into animal behavior. And we had a primate enclosure where I went to undergrad, and I spent many, many hours observing baboons. Now, this is not at all related to my interest in social network analysis, but it does loop back. I graduated from college, got a job as a lab tech in a biomedical engineering lab. Again, didn't really know what I was doing. I thought I might go to graduate school, and I started teaching high school math. I had to take a few more math classes, get certified to teach while I was doing that, I decided to get a master's in math. So here I am, I'm teaching I'm finishing this master's program in math. And my advisor at the time suggested maybe I think about PhD programs in math, but that just seemed like too much math. I didn't really <laughs> want to do that much math. But I also liked education. I enjoyed teaching. I was interested in some ed policy type ideas. I didn't really know what that meant. I was in my 20s and I was reading the newspaper. So I was kind of interested in education type research. So then I applied to graduate programs and I applied to a couple different types of programs. I applied to a curriculum instruction program actually at Maryland. I applied for this program called Measurement Statistics and Evaluation at the (laughs) University of Maryland. I think the chair was like Hancock or something. That's where
1: I remember you from.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And then I applied to statistics programs. Out of sheer dumb luck, because I really had no idea what I was doing, I got into a couple programs. Mm-hmm. And the program that I got into was a statistics program, but they had an IES predoctoral training fellowship for people who wanted to do research in education. So I thought it was kind of a marriage of both the things I wanted to do, not real math, but something math-related, and I wanted mm-hmm. to do something in education. And those stipends were really nice. I highly recommend those IES predoctoral training grants. So I ended up being in Pittsburgh for five years. I stayed for another year.
1: Carnegie Mellon, right?
2: At Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if anybody's listening now and thinking, wow, Carnegie Mellon, that's like one of the top statistics programs in the country. And they do data science now, and you would be correct. But I was that last cohort before they got really selective. So people hear <gasps> that and they think, oh my gosh, you must know so much. And I think, not really.
0: (laughs) Tracy, that's kind of an inside voice observation. I'm just saying. (laughs) Wow. One of the last people
2: (laughs) that
1: they
0: let squeak through a capital S statistics program.
2: (laughs) And then the reason I got into social network analysis for my dissertation is my advisor, Brian Junker, who maybe listeners know for his work on cognitive diagnosis models and his work in psychometric. I wasn't really interested in those models (laughs) and he was my advisor. I really, really liked having him as my advisor and I said, well, if I don't want to do that, what else can I do? And he said, well, you can do anything you want, but I just happened to be on this project with a researcher from Northwestern, his name's Jim Spallon, and he's really interested in looking at treatment effects on networks and I'm thinking, Facebook? So I kind of had Mm -hmm. that same thing. (laughs) <laughs> Facebook networks? What? And so I ended up kind of hesitantly saying, well, I'm not so interested in the Dina model, so I'll go with networks. Mm-hmm. But it ended up being something that I kind of, again, married my interest in education, at ed policy, as well as statistics, and that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: I'm going to be doing the editing of the raw footage to get it down, and I'm going to need to cut all of that out because <laughs> it's just the standard pre-med to baboon, to bioengineering, to high school teacher, to Master's to PhD stat to ed researcher. Tracy, you could have told me that on the front end and saved me a bit of work. We had a dollar for every time we've heard that one. So the usual. (laughs) When did you start at Maryland?
2: 2013.
0: And this is the first time you met Greg. Let me restate this, Greg. This is the first time you've met. It's Tracy. Possible we've passed
2: each other a couple of
1: times. Um, it's nice, nice to finally meet you, Tracy. So I would like to actually ask Tracy to talk about stuff she does know about, which and she's indicated she has some deep knowledge of Facebook. But we're going to go to these things called social network models or social network analysis. What I do know about them, Tracy, you could fit like in someone's little pinky.:
0: Bueller, Bueller.
1: My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31
0: Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious.
1: In case anybody out there is like me in that regard, God help them, I think it would be really nice if you can start easing us into the idea of what social network models or social network analysis is, because my limited understanding would seem to indicate that it represents this whole other dimension of really cool questions that people can address that don't tend to find their way in a typical curriculum.
2: So social network, as we've talked about, Twitter, Facebook or your real-life social networks, that data is particularly interesting because unlike your standard iris data, or I guess now it's penguin data instead of iris data. Oh, really? In R, yeah, that's the new data set.
1: Penguins are the new irises. Yeah. There is a mysterious ritual.
0: No living creature has survived it, except
2: the penguin. So, which is typically a rectangular, right? And you have one observation per row. You usually have your variables along the columns, your observations for the rows. Social network data looks different. It feels different. And as a result, you have different methods of analysis. So rather than having one observation per row, what you tend to have is kind of all the people along the rows and all the people along the columns. And then what is actually the data that gets filled in is whether or not those people have a particular type of relationship or a particular type of interaction. Now, those... Two examples I just gave would be binary numbers, right? So, do they have that relationship? You get a one, you get a zero if they don't. But there are other types of relationships where you might be collecting the frequency of interaction or the number of retweets. Patrick, retweeting is where someone <laughs> takes something that you say and, you know, they like it or they want to kind of further propagate it through the network. That's what.
0: Thank you. Just, you can throw me a bone throughout this entire episode.
2: Sure, sure.
0: Because I do have a question later on of what does it mean to swipe left? Because people have told me that a lot about me, but I don't know what that means. I'll ask that later.
2: Uh
1: I have a question right off the bat, Tracy, about what you just described, which is fascinating for start. And it reminds me a little bit of cluster analysis, for example, where you have a matrix that characterizes distances, whether it's dissimilarities or similarities between things. So one of the things I just wanted to ask you right off the bat, you said that oftentimes, not always, it's zeros and ones, but it could be something else. Usually we have information above the diagonal that just duplicates the information below the diagonal. But for what you're talking about, is it possible for me to have a different relationship with Patrick than Patrick has with me in this process?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you could definitely have data that the diagonals are mirrors, images of each other. We call that an undirected network or an undirected relationship. would be something like co-authorship or collaboration. The relationship kind of goes in both directions. Where you wouldn't have a symmetric matrix is for relationships that have some type of direction. So for example, we might look at retweets, but we also could talk about things like in real life relationships like advice seeking. Greg, you might go to Patrick for advice about, I'm not Hmm. sure, probably not social media, but but something. (laughs)
0: Probation.
2: Sure, probation. Legal stuff mostly legal in the stuff. end. Yeah. But Patrick may not come to you for that same advice. So he might if mm-hmm. we're constructing an advice network about probation, you would go to Patrick, but Patrick wouldn't go to you. He would have somebody else in his network that he would go to. Do so you have these kind of asymmetric relationships and networks? Vice-seeking is a good example because there is that hierarchy. Sometimes you have more junior people going to more senior people, for example. Friendship is one of those weird relationships that could be either. Hmm. So we often think of friendship as a bidirectional relationship. There are probably many people that you would list as friends that may not list you as friends. Hmm.
0: So I have been described as an unreciprocated friend.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's definitely possible. In a
0: way, everything that you're talking about can be thought of as a form of measurement. If you go back to Stevens as it's the principled assignment of numbers to observations, that's precisely what's happening here, but in a radically different way than what we're used to thinking of x prime, x inverse, x prime, y, where that has some meaning. What are a couple of examples of a theory Theoretical question that you would use this approach to try to evaluate in applied research?
2: I'm going to give you two categories of examples. So, one category is all about figuring out why these relationships exist. Or what are the associations we're seeing between attributes of these people in the network and whether or not they have ties? So if we assume ties are binary just for simplicity now. We might be thinking about, is it true in an advice-seeking network that junior colleagues tend to seek advice from more senior colleagues? Is it true that senior colleagues don't seek advice from other people? Or is it true that senior colleagues only seek advice from other senior colleagues? We might be interested in things like racial or ethnic or gender homophily. That's a common word in social network analysis, this idea that people who are similar are more likely to come together and have a particular type of relationship. So we could be thinking of trying to estimate to what extent individual attributes predict network ties. And that's something that I've been doing for a good chunk of time, mostly with teacher networks. So looking at is someone who has a formal leadership position in a school, are they more likely to be sought for advice? Are they more likely to seek advice? Are teachers that are in the the same position, whether that means same grade if you're an elementary school teacher or in the same department if you're a high school teacher or those people more likely to seek advice from one another compared to going across grades or across departments. That all falls into the first category of trying to figure out why do people have these connections or why are people forming these connections? The second category of research questions are all about how do these connections impact people's outcomes? We can think about things like how does the fact that I'm seeing 500 wordle posts on facebook impact whether or not i'm going to start playing wordle and i started playing wordle because how could you not
1: how'd you do today by the way
2: i got a four i almost always get fours
1: yeah me too and
2: i almost always forget the word so i have no idea (laughs) what the word is today (laughs) that is an example of a form of social influence i'm seeing what my friends are doing and so i'm likely to adopt that behavior or adopt that opinion You see it often on Facebook with a lot of this misinformation about COVID or about vaccines. The more you are seeing what your friends are thinking or what opinions they are sharing, the more likely you will maybe change your own beliefs or opinions based on your friends. And we see this in education as well. I mean, we see this in teachers. There have been a a number of papers looking at to what extent am I exposed to different instructional strategies through my social network, and then how does that impact changes to my own instruction. I was actually reading a paper looking at students that read together in, in elementary school classrooms and finding that if you read with someone who is a better reader than you, you're actually more likely. To have higher reading scores at the end of the school year, which I thought was interesting because usually we see social influence impact things like beliefs or opinions or even just daily behavior, things like smoking, drug use, that sort of thing. I think it's interesting to think about maybe you can be influenced in terms of your Reading achievement as well
0: forgive if this is misplaced but it sounds a little finite mixture modeling like classification typology like if there's a type of student who reads with another student then they are more likely to have some outcome does it live in that neck of the woods or is this something distinctly different
2: I would say it's closer to regression than it is to finite mixture models. Although there are a lot of papers out there that are interested in clustering people in a network. Who are the people that play similar roles? If you have people that all play similar roles, how does that impact diffusion of information and that sort of thing? You can think of it more as a big logistic regression problem in terms of trying to figure out why people have these ties or how people are being influenced. And and typically for the, Mm. the influence side of things, those are typically typically fit with your standard regression model or growth model.
1: Oh, interesting. One of the things that we try to use here on Quantitude is the mind's eye. As Patrick often asks people to do, to visualize things that seem damn near impossible to visualize, but that doesn't stop us from asking people to do it. Everything that you're describing to me because I'm connecting it rightly or wrongly to something cluster analytic, I think of space as being very important in this whole process. Like in cluster analysis, where I think of some people are closer in space that we try to infer that by virtue of their distances from other people, however we measure distance. Some people are farther apart. I think of everything that you're describing as mapping people out in space and maybe having patterns there. Is that close?
2: Absolutely. And one of the standard models that I use actually takes that mind's eye approach, right? This idea that people in a network are situated in a latent space, unlike cluster analysis, where you actually have those differences or those similarities. This particular model makes the assumption that everybody has a position in this latent space. And that the distances between pairs of people are what contribute to the probability of a connection so that people are close together in this latent space. They're more likely to have a connection or a network tie than people that are far apart. A lot of people are like, well, that's just a projection. That's kind of very PCA-ish. And I would say, yes, that's exactly what it is. We're basically taking a network and trying to project it into two or three dimensions, right? So if you think of a network as n-dimensional, we're trying to project it down to be two or three-dimensional so it's tractable. So you could just take that model itself and take those latent positions and examine them and do things with them. Mm -hmm. One of the things you could do with them is look at those distances and say, okay, the people that are closer together in this latent space are gonna be more influential. There is somebody that is just super influential That is the person that brought the floss dance to my fifth-grade classroom.
0: Do the floss dance. Everybody's doing it now.
2: That person is going to be at the center of that latent social space, right? (laughs) Different classrooms might have different structures. You might have cliques of people, right? You have the sporty boys over here and the girls that like to make bracelets over there. And then you have the sporty girls over here. But the idea is that different groups of kids have different network structures, you can see the variability in those network structures with those latent spaces.
1: So, the kids who drink Coors Light and shoot at stop signs, that would be one cluster is that right, Patrick?
0: Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> it sounds a little multi-dimensional scaling-like.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So often before fitting the model, we'll actually run an MDS to use as the starting values for these latent positions. I would say there's lots of parallels and lots of other methods that all overlap for these network models, for sure.
1: I could imagine two people who are sort of situated in the same region of space, but maybe are still disconnected. There's no direct... Link between the two of them, and maybe Patrick has to tell Dan, who has to tell other Dan, who has to tell Andrea, in order for those people to be connected. Unless I'm wrong, there might be some important distinction also between just the geometry of the space and the actual connections that occur. Is that true?
2: Yeah, I haven't said anything about exploratory or descriptive statistics, but there is something called betweenness, which is really important. And you can think of people in the network that have high betweenness as people that are brokering this information, right? Like who are the people that kind of sit between two other groups of people? If these folks over here know something, all that information has to feed through this one person in the middle before the people on the other side are going to know something. That property is really important in terms of any type of diffusion, whether we're talking about information diffusion, changing instructional practices diffusion, or even if we're thinking about things like viral contagion. Network structure is really important for all of those things.
1: So what are some of the other descriptive statistics that you might refer to? You mentioned betweenness. Are there other ways of characterizing whether it's the individuals who are part of a network or the structure of the network as a whole?
2: When I teach my social network analysis workshop or course, I tend to talk about descriptive statistics in one of three different areas. So you have statistics that describe the network as a whole. You have descriptive statistics that describe each individual node in that network. And then you have descriptive statistics that describe the edges. And they're all a little bit different and tell you slightly different information. For the network as a whole, common statistics include things like density. So like, what is the proportion of observed ties out of the total number of possible ties. We characterize networks as sparse or dense.
1: So does Patrick have density? A
2: single person can't have density. You were to surround Patrick with people that maybe he interacts with, maybe his friendship network density might be a little Mm -hmm. low compared to maybe some other people's (laughs) friendship.
0: In other words, an unreciprocated social isolate, (laughs) because I've been referred to that before as well.
2: Yeah, so you would be, again, if we're picturing this network, You would be that node that doesn't have any connection (laughs) and everybody else is connected. So that's one way to describe a network. If we have uh, relationships that are directed, so like advice seeking, for example, we might be interested in the rate of reciprocity or even with friendship. What is the proportion of ties in one direction that also exists in the other direction? So that might be of interest to researchers. You know, do you see more reciprocal friendships? When kids are young compared to when they're middle grade versus adult, Hmm. you might be interested in the reciprocity of certain types of relationships. I'm working with a group of researchers. The data set that is motivating our work is really about resource sharing in more third world areas of certain countries. And so thinking about people that live in what we would call villages, for example, who do you share food with? Who do you share money with? What other types of resources are you sharing? And so looking at how those networks might be more or less reciprocal depending on the culture in which that particular network is embedded. The other one that I'm going to talk about is transitivity, which if you can think back to your middle school math class where we talk about the transitive property. Euclid's
1: first common notion is this. Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. That's a rule of mathematical reasoning. It's true because it
0: works. Do you have any idea how hard it is to find a movie quote on transitivity?
2: So if you have a connection from I to J, and you have a connection from J to K, how often do you see that connection between I and K? So that's this idea of transitivity. With respect to node statistics, the things that people really care about, in addition to betweenness, right, so who are these brokers, but who are the powerful people? I don't know if it's the United States, we just care about people that are powerful.
0: Knowledge is power.
2: Seize him. Cut his throat. Oh, wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Power
1: is power.
2: Who are the future influencers, for example? The Kim Kardashians
1: is what you mean, I think. Yes.
2: Yes. 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 Who are the future Kardashians? Although I think Mm -hmm. we're all showing our age. I think there's probably a better influencer example out there.
0: Do tell, uh, old millennial. I
2: don't know. I'm I'm too old. I'm too old. I'm (laughs) I'm only barely a millennial. I'm just hanging on.
0: One thing it makes me think about is this exploratory, confirmatory continuum that we all live on. And all our different procedures move up and down this continuum. Where would you place social network analysis on this continuum?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's basically the same place I would put any other method. I don't think that it's any more exploratory or any more inferential. I think there are exploratory methods for network analysis. I think there are inferential methods for analysis. I think they are susceptible to the same threat that most other statistical methods are susceptible to. For example, if you have an exploratory analysis that you're doing, I think You could fall into doing some unethical things in terms of looking for particular patterns to drive your inference, for example. Same thing with your inferential work. If you are fitting a model, this field actually doesn't have great goodness of fit methods. I mean, I think the methods that are out there are fine, but it's not an active field. Whereas in SEM, for example, you have very specific fit indices and then you have very specific people slamming those fit indices right? So there's a lot of work out there trying to assess model fit. There's not that same level of work for the inferential social network methods. The best we have are posterior predictive checks. Most of these models are fit using MCMC or some type of Bayesian approach. So you're kind of looking at, I generate a whole bunch of data from my model. Where does my observed data fall in that distribution? And there's not really great science on what particular statistics you should be looking at, what are the things that you need to be looking at for assessing model fit. So I would say that that is a particular open area of research in terms of social network analysis that maybe needs to happen.
1: So one thing that I liked is that you have spoken about it both as descriptive and inferential or you know, we're sort of also going back and forth between exploratory and confirmatory. Those aren't exactly the same thing. But when I think about this from an inferential standpoint or a hypothesis testing standpoint, something that we might even label as more confirmatory, I don't understand the data. And here's what I mean by that. If I think about my regular N by P data matrix and whether I'm doing a logistic regression or some other type of analysis, I know what N represents. I know how the variables enter into all of this. But in the things that you're describing, I think of the data as not the people per se, or nodes, as you call them, but I I think about the data more as the edges, the nature of the connections between these people. And if someone told me, all right, well, You've got 20 people, just for sake of argument, and 20 people should have something like 190 connections among them or whatever it would be. Actually, that's 190 connections for one way and then 190 for the other. It feels like the data are anything but independent. And a lot of the kinds of techniques that I think about with my N by P data matrix, one of the first assumptions we typically make has to do with independence of observations. But this, to me, seems like just a giant mess of dependence here.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. So one way to think about, rather than thinking about this end-by-end matrix of ties, we can unfold that matrix and think of every pair of people in the network as having an outcome, right? Person one, person two, their network tie. Person two, person three, their network tie, and so on and so forth. And if you unfold the matrix that way, then you do have more of a N by P-ish type data set that you could think about. The problem, as you said, Greg, is that those rows are not independent. Even thinking about the upper triangular versus the lower triangular matrix, if I nominate Patrick as a friend, that increases the chances I hope that he would nominate me as a friend. Obviously, I know him in order to nominate him, so he would maybe more likely to nominate me. You also have to think about things like if everybody's nominating Greg, for example, and then a new person comes into the network, that person might also be more likely to nominate Greg because Greg is the person that taught us how to do the floss.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Patrick, the floss is actually a... I think we're going to make this episode (laughs) a lot shorter if you two just quit explaining things (laughs) to me. We'll send you a TikTok
1: video that explains to you what the floss is.
0: Be sure to use wordles on your Snapgram that you t- to me. Great. Okay. Yeah, that's just great. There's a lot of editing in that.
2: Okay let me go back. These observations are not independent, right? And I think anybody with experience with their own relationships know that my relationship with my oldest kid is related to my relationship with the next oldest kid, right? And so as a result, we can't just apply our standard general linear model framework because we're violating this independence assumption. And so we have this other kind of framework for modeling network ties, we can think of modeling the dependent structure implicitly through latent variables, which is what I tend to do. But there's also a whole bunch of other people that are modeling this dependent structure explicitly. If any of the listeners have Googled network analysis or Googled social network models, you might have heard of a class of models called exponential random graph models. And those models are modeling the dependent structure explicitly, which is a lot harder. So props to to those folks, because it's, It's not an easy task to think about exactly what components need to be put into these models to specifically specify a dependence structure. The latent variable folks, we have an easier job because our job says we put in latent variables into these models, and if we condition on them, now our ties are independent. And that goes back to this idea of a latent social space that I talked about before. So if I take my network and I project it down into some lower dimensional space, I can take those positions as latent variables and include them in my model. Once I account for those positions, then making the assumption that my ties are independent doesn't seem as far-fetched as it did before. And it's really hard to explain this in a podcast. So if anybody is interested, I encourage everyone to read papers about latent space models. And there are a number out there.
1: Being hard to describe has not stopped us yet. It doesn't mean we're...
0: for 90 episodes, (laughs) it hasn't stopped us. I don't know why we're going to throw that criteria on now, but we will put a few of these citations up on the show notes. So if you're interested, you can track those down. Can you take this entire architecture and scale it up where you can track changes in social networks over time?
2: Absolutely. So I think just like with other modeling frameworks, all of those extensions apply. So the extension that I contributed was to take these network models and develop a multi-level modeling framework for them. That was my dissertation. My academic sibling that came in after me, she took these models and added a temporal or a longitudinal framework. To them, There are other people that are doing similar things with longitudinal models. There's so much what you can do. So there's a lot of different types of longitudinal models that can be applied to networks. Because you have this interesting evolution of people forming ties, and then behavior changing as a result of ties, trying to model the co-evolution of ties forming, people changing maybe because of those changes, people form new ties. There is a software out there that models both of those processes happening together. And that's called Sienna by Tom Snyders, who is really prominent in the field and prominent in many fields.
1: When you talk about modeling change, and Patrick, that was a really good question. Are we talking about change at the level of the individual and the individual's relationships or connections? Or are we talking about, and I don't know how else to say it, but sort of this network as a whole, this blob that's kind of going over time. Can we handle both of those kinds of things longitudinally?
2: Absolutely. There are longitudinal models that look at individual changes, right? So how are node I ties changing over time? Mm -hmm. Granted, those models look at the entire network together, but there are variables that we can look at. What is the impact of this particular variable on these ties and how does it change over time? We can model how the network ties that exist are impacting particular behaviors or opinions over time. And then we can talk about how an entire network might change over time as a result of some type of intervention or exogenous shock. So there could be some systemic change or, for example, like a new policy in a school that then shuffles or changes up how people are interacting with one another. And that's something else that I focus on a bit is if you have some type of intervention or policy change How does then the network change as a result? And what structural differences do we see? Do we see networks that are having more connections? Do we see nodes that are now operating more as brokers? Do we see network structure in terms of these clicks? I talked about the sporty kids and the kids that are reading and the bracelet makers. Do we see that those clicks stay insular or do we see that now we have some connections across those cliques? I do think there's research to try to break down some of the insularity that we're seeing in peer networks. So if you think about your typical middle school, you see a lot of clicks, which tends to be kind of a right place for bullying, right? You have a lot of in-group, ex-group type of situation and you are very protective of your in-group and people that are outside of your group appear to be threatening, there are a lot of interventions to try to impact bullying by changing the structure of these networks and trying to make these networks less insular and more integrated. Because now if you don't see the rest of your class as being outside of your group. It makes it, now there are people just like everybody else and you have connections to them and so you're less likely to victimize them.
0: As with much of our quantitative methodologies, it seems like you're a social network analyst or you're a structural equation modeler or you're a whatever. In my neck of the woods, I'm interested in risk and protective factors for adolescent drug and alcohol use. So I think about these things in a very SEM-like way. You have stress, negative affect, impaired parenting, very variable-centered. But when I'm thinking about the things that you're describing, another variable might be a characteristic of the social network that an adolescent is embedded within. Is there a way of marrying these two approaches where you can use a social network as a predictor in some way in what we might call a more traditional modeling framework?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the big advantages of Bayesian modeling is you can embed a number of models altogether. So just to give you an example, we've been doing things where we're embedding social network models into a mediation analysis. We have an intervention. We think that a particular parameter from a social network model, in this case, it's a measure of subgroup insularity. So how segregated are these clicks? In this case, it's teachers and how does the introduction of Instructional coaches into the school impact that? How does that change the network structure? Because we're estimating this parameter with the social network model, at the same time we're doing this mediation analysis, what we end up doing is we just put them all into a big Bayesian model and estimate them simultaneously. We're really interested in the mediation analysis, but we need this one piece from the social network model to use as our mediator. We did it in kind of a simple regression modeling framework, but it also could be done in in structural equation modeling. There are people that are fitting social network data using structural equation models. There is a paper, I think, coming out or maybe it's online now, and we can put that in the show notes as well.
1: One of the things that I've been struck by throughout all of the examples you've given and explanations you've given is how you are tying these to very specific problems. And so even though there's this mathematical underlay, a very technical underlay of things where you could really get lost in the Bayesian weeds if you wanted to, Every time you describe these, you bring it back to a classroom or the nature of the connections or or something like that. And I absolutely love how this is grounded throughout everything that you have talked about so that people can see what the rich applications are for this. It's not just some method that people are down in a basement trying to code. They're doing it in the context of real problems that were difficult to answer.
2: I think for me, that's one of the things that motivates my work. I don't know that I would be motivated to do the work if it was just only about the methods. And that's not to knock all the people that are doing amazing work, just about the methods. But for me, I think I'm most motivated when I have a real world problem to solve. And I think that's maybe why I went into quant methods slash statistics for a field, because I really wanted that marriage between an applied field and the methodology. I'm more interested in the methodology. That's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy doing the coding. I enjoy thinking through kind of problems about identifiability and goodness of fit and that sort of thing. But what motivates the new ideas, and maybe it's because I'm not particularly creative, I don't know. But what motivates the good ideas are these real world applications, these real world problems that researchers are trying to solve.
1: Shocker of shockers for the listeners, I actually do know Tracy very well enough to say that she is extremely creative methodologically and in the ability to translate that methodology to very cool real-world problems. And on that note, I would ask you, if we think about all the people who want to grow up to become Tracy Sweets in this particular area, what are the ripe areas of social network analysis where you think there's good methodological-slash-applied work to be done?
2: I think there's a lot of areas where there could be some work. I would already mentioned goodness of fit. hmm or if that part got cut out, I could say, <laughs> goodness of fit. Um, we don't really have a lot of methodological research on whether current goodness of fit measures are actually adequate for assessing whether these models are fitting our data well or not. We do these posterior predictive checks, and we say that they are, but I don't know that there's been any real research into those. Social network analysis also is maybe unique in some of the quantitative methods fields And that it's also a big part of data science. So it's a big part of data visualization. Again, people are doing great work in data science. But I do think when you have really large data and you're trying to do some type of social network analysis, I think there are holes there in terms of how do I make a method that works for smaller networks work for these huge networks? And do I even want to apply these social selection models or these network models that work for networks of size 100 or 200 to networks that are a size 2 million? Hmm. Am I even trying to answer the same questions? And if I am trying to answer the same questions, Do those models even make sense and are they even appropriate? I think there's some work to be done there. I also think there's some work to be done in the applied setting of looking more deeply at social networks. There are a lot of researchers that I think would want to do more network data collection, but then feel like it's a hassle to try to get parents to sign off on those consent forms for collecting network data. It feels personal somehow to be kind of naming names of peers in a classroom, for example, But I do think there are open areas in terms of data collection methods that people really aren't thinking about. And not that that's necessarily like a quantitative method research topic, but I do think it could be one, right? Thinking about what are better ways to collect network data.
1: That's a validity question right there. That sounds extraordinarily important. Merging issues of design with ultimate analysis. I like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And then one thing that I haven't mentioned so far is this whole other field called network interference. And that's basically when you are doing an intervention and there is an underlying network that exists among the people in your intervention and how that particular network structure can enhance or inhibit the effects of your interventions. That's a new thing that I'm working on. There's a lot of people working in the field and they're all doing pretty amazing stuff. I do think that something that we do maybe particularly well at the University of Maryland and our program is train students to do a lot of simulation-based research. And that research isn't happening as much in that field. And I think that's an open area as well. Hopefully your listeners won't hurry up and do that before I do it (laughs) because I'm trying to wrap up that paper. (laughs) That's definitely an open area. But there are a lot. People can send me email and I'll think of more. Or they can come to Maryland and work with work with <laughs> yeah. them, and I will come up with many more.
0: So. I just love thinking about this as a method, and even if I don't incorporate this in my own work, just in the last hour has made me think more about the measures that I do have in my data set. Mm-hmm. So, again, I study adolescent development, and in one of my collaborative projects has several measures where the adolescent reports on their peers. And how much do your peers use drugs? How much do they use alcohol? An important one is how much do your peers tolerate your own use of drugs and alcohol? But those adolescents are embedded in these networks that themselves have an important relation to the other things that I study. So I think that's fascinating to think about. The other one, you talk about novel ways of data collection. My wife, who is a faculty member here at Carolina in psychology, did a study a few years ago with undergraduates where she collected their phones and over 90% of them just handed over their phones and gave permission to download the prior two weeks of text messages. So they were collecting data before they even knew there was a study. And of course, they consented into it to give the text messages. But you have this way of looking at their communications before they ever knew that they were going to participate in the study. I think this is a very exciting time to be alive with technology and computational power and advanced modeling to think about these questions in a way that we've never thought about them before.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Even just for that example, Patrick, natural language processing comes in, right? So you have all of these other methods that can enhance the work that I do, for example. Super interesting.
0: What Andrea is using are these corpus dictionaries of words that associate with depression or anxiety or drug or alcohol use. But you're exactly right. On another project I'm working on, they're trying to use natural language processing to draw out themes. So not just structure or counts or length or complexity, but drawing out these more subjective kind of themes from the text and then to embed that in the network model is very exciting. Actually, as a tie back to the start of this discussion, Andrea used my own cell phone with the tech people to test the text capture (laughs) program that they were using, (laughs) and the guy was cursing and grousing and cursing and grousing, and I was sitting there working across the room and the software wasn't working, and at one point I said, well, what's the problem? Uh And he said, well, I've got a 14-day window and it's only getting 11 of your texts, (laughs) and there was a pause. And I said, no, that's about right. And the guy was like this string of expletives and he unplugs my phone. And He said, oh, for God's sake, somebody else give me their phone.
1: Uh, That's hilarious. My only concern is if any of those texts were for me because we have an agreement that we delete each
0: other's texts. This happened prior to our working relationship. All
1: right. Excellent. Yeah. Right. Well, on that note, I would very much like to thank Tracy Sweet for joining us today and tolerating us, I would say. She is a wonderful colleague to be able to work with for the last nine years. If anybody out there is thinking about graduate study programs to work on, she is absolutely a wonderful person to be around and to work with.
0: Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you for your lack of judgment in agreeing to talk to us. And you can now go downstairs and release your dog <laughs> from the crate. Because Tracy had to lock him up at the beginning because they were barking. But it was very funny because Greg and I didn't realize it, but Tracy has a Bluetooth headset on so we could hear her all the way down to the basement as she had an extended conversation with her dog. So I regret that we did not have the recorder running at that point. But Tracy, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was fantastic. I appreciate you letting me come on and talk about my work.
0: All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for nerdy audio stuff to share with the people in their social networks. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our totally redone website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, and notepads, just in time for last-minute Valentine's Day gifts. From RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast with class. Well, maybe late in class. Today's episode has been sponsored by Tuning Parameters, for when your model optimization is a little off-key, <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, and by Potential Outcomes. Providing an actual statistical estimate of how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. And finally, by Hamiltonian estimation. Way better than Rentian estimation, Wickedian estimation, or that old West Side Story in estimation. This is most definitely not NPR.